welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and in this episode, we discover how our minds, bodies and spirits are uplifted by the printed page. talking to Dr. Charlotte Lee, Senior Lecturer in German at the Faculty of Modern and Medieval Languages at the University of Cambridge and Fellow of Murray Edwards College. Right now, she's exploring ideas of movement in literature and how poetry, especially, moves us, talking to everyone from dancers to neuroscientists to work out how writers do it. Big creative projects are a bit of a thing at Murray Edwards. It's home to the celebrated New Hall Art Collection, humming with life in every corner of the college. A perfect jumping off point then for academic work that just won't sit still. Dr. Lee, good morning. Thank you so much for agreeing to meet us here. Thank you for coming. Charlotte, the New Hall Art Collection that's hosted here by Murray Edwards is one of the hidden jewels of Cambridge, isn't it? I mean, there are over 500 works of modern and contemporary art, all by female artists, internationally renowned female artists such as Tracy Emin, Paula Rego, Judy Chicago, Lubiano Hamid, who won the Turner Prize in 2017. You've got some really amazing names here. It's the largest collection in Europe built up over, I, would, I think, about 35 years. And of course, it's important to mention that it's open to the public as well. This is why I'm calling it a hidden jewel. I mean, what an amazing asset that this college has built up. Even as we walked into the Porter's Lodge, the very entrance of the college, I mean, there were two originals by Tracy Emin just hanging there on the wall. What, I mean, that's amazing. It is. It is. And just to have that, that immediate access, there's nothing, there's nothing stuffy about it. it is, it's, it's worthy of a museum in terms of the, the significance of what we have in here, but it's, it, the, the engagement with, with the work is much freer. And you suggested, Charlotte, that we meet in the garden first of all because you wanted to show me a particular sculpture. Tell me who we're seeing. This is Barbara Hepworth here, an artist who I really, really admire for all sorts of reasons, yeah, aesthetic reasons, just also... She was a pioneer in so many ways, artistically, in terms of managing an artistic career and family and so on. And she's also from Wakefield originally, which is also where my own mother grew up. So it's, oh, uh, wow. So family <laughs> connections, <laughs> academic connections, artistic <laughs> connections here. Tell me about this sculpture that's here in the garden. So this is called Ascending Form, Gloria. And there are several copies of these. Uh, I think there's one up in the Hepworth Museum in, in Wakefield, certainly. A few in other places as well. And the title is a clue. I think it tells us something about how we can engage with sculpture. You think of sculpture as being something that's static, but obviously we might be moving around it. But with this, also the, the title, even an untrained person like me is encouraged to look up, to move the eyes up. It's like a double diamond structure, really, isn't it? With a large exactly. hole at the top. It's yep. taller than us. I mean, yes, it's an, it's an it imposing is. piece of work. It is. And what year did she make this? Let's just walk around and have a look here. Okay, so 1958, she made this in bronze, uh, and there's an edition of six, as you say. Wow. Um, and what, do, what does it make you feel then when you look at it? Why do you want to show it to me? 
I just love to look at it and look up with it. There's a few interpretations of, of what, it's, what it's representing. Some people have suggested that it's hands coming together in prayer. Right. Others have suggested that it might be natural forms growing out of one another and, and, and upwards. It's challenging. I think it was also actually produced in, in the throes of grief after the death of her son. So it's, it takes a while to get to the uplift, I think, but you, but you do get there by engaging with, with the shapes, by moving upwards, ascending, as, as the title encourages you to do. So Charlotte, as we walk round this, you can see the effort, you can see the work that's had to go into giving this bronze some kind of fluid, uplifting form. I know it's a huge preoccupation for visual artists, this idea of how to get a sense of movement and vitality into something quite unforgiving like bronze for sculptures or even vitality in a flat two-dimensional canvas if they're painters. And the reason I think we're standing here talking about movement and art is because that's what you're interested in too on the flat two-dimensional page. So the idea that words can embody a sense of movement is something that's very familiar to you and that you're working on right now. Can you tell me a little bit about that first? Yes, absolutely. And um, I think it's, it's important actually that we've come out into, th into three dimensions because we think of text as being something that's in two dimensions, as you say, flat on the page. But certainly as soon as you start to speak them out loud and actually even before then, it's already more than that. It's always multimodal in drawing on a variety of sensory modalities. So it's always in some sense 3D also. And again, it's, it's nice to be standing here looking at a sculpture, something that we think is very static, but can suggest, convey, perhaps even stimulate a sense of movement. It's the same with, with texts. And I think poetry above all, um, because the language is under such pressure. And why is it under such pressure? Because of the constraints of the form, um, the line lengths, it depends what other conventions, if any, the poet is working with. But if, if you've got a rhyme, if you've got a rhythm, that automatically acts as a constraint. But then that pressure actually also releases something in the language. So you can see the work happening in that very tight form in the way that Barbara Hepworth here is grappling with her bronze. Yeah. Everybody trying to get that sense of life into something that is technically not living. Exactly. Do you find if you get stuck, you know, when you're in your office, do you come down and think, oh, I'll just have a quick look at somebody and get my juices going again? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, thinking about movement, wandering around, going from work to work, looking at the variety, looking at the variety of media, of colours, of themes, obviously, that is also incredibly stimulating before you then stop in front of one and think, wow. There we are, yeah. <laughs> well, let's go up to your office now and um, you can tell me a little bit more about how you're considering movement and artistic practice in poetry. Charlotte, we're back now in your office at Murray Edwards College, a beautiful view over the gardens from your windows. You have a really lovely space here. We're sitting down to start and I feel somehow we shouldn't be because, you know, you're going to tell me all about movement and rhythm and vitality in literature. And ahead of meeting you today, I looked up a few things that I thought might help. And one of them was something Mayor Angelou, the African-American writer, said and it was, everything in the universe has rhythm, everything dances. So I know that's the focus of your current project. Tell me what brought you to that. 
Well, I think a long-standing interest in dance um, to start with, and a sense as I started to work more with poetry, especially as a graduate. So as an undergraduate, I was always quite scared of poetry, actually. I didn't quite know what to do with it. I think some people find it comes naturally. I didn't. But then as I got further on and increased in confidence, I suddenly thought, gosh, I there just seems to me to be a connection here. I, and I, I couldn't tell you why, and I'm not sure. And so I spent the next few years just with that in the back of my head, really, thinking, mm, I wonder. And then gradually, as I got into research more, I met some people who work with approaches derived from cognitive science. And that, I thought, ah, bingo, that is going to help me, I think, articulate some of the things that I think are going on here in terms of a relationship between certainly poetry and dance, but also just poetry and movement much more generally, much more universally. I mean, we talk about poetry in motion, and that's a phrase everybody will yeah. recognise. Was that a sort of jumping off point? Did you think, what is the reason for this cliché? Because it can't be a cliché unless there's some truth behind it. Absolutely, yes. And, and you're right, that's a very well-known phrase. Also in, um, in scholarship, you very often read of you know, the sense of movement generated by the line or the movement of a poem. But it's pretty rare for someone to say more than that, to kind of to, to, to get it behind what's going on there. And yes, it was just something I felt excited about and, and teased by it. I know you're based in the German department, but this project, you're using English, French and German poetry to try and unpack what you think is going on in terms of movement in poetry. And it struck me that those are three languages with very different rhythms. So mm -hmm. how are you approaching that? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's that's why, actually, um, I, I felt you need different prosodic systems. So English and German, actually, in terms of their poetry, yes, there, there are differences, and, and a linguist would, would, would tell you that straight away. But their systems are not dissimilar. Their poetic rhythms are based on beats, really. Um, you know, if, if you like, um, beats and offbeats, like in music. So a stress syllable and then an unstressed syllable, etc. French is different. French does have accents, but that's not really how the, the verse structure emerges. That's much more through counting syllables. And I've yet to really come on to the French part of the project, but I thought that needs to be in there. If, if I'm, I'm not trying to be universalising with, with this project, I'm trying to give insights into a few corners of, <laughs> of things that people can then go and, you know, go and expand on according to their own knowledge and experience. But I thought I really can't just stay with two languages that are pretty similar. I need at least one that's obviously different to challenge my own assumptions, really. Well, I know that you've brought a couple of poems along to show me how this works yeah. in practice. So what are we going to start with? Should we start with the Windhoven? Sure. Now, this is a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. And I had to look up what a Windhover is. Mm. And it turns out to be another word for a kestrel. Yes. So why don't you read it to us first? And then we'll talk about it. The Windhover, to Christ our Lord. I caught this morning, morning's minion, kingdom of daylight's dauphin, dapple dawn drawn falcon, in his riding of the rolling level underneath him steady air, and striding high there, how he rung upon the rein of a wimpling wing in his ecstasy. Then off, off, forth on swing, as a skate's heel sweeps smooth on a bow bend, the hurl and gliding rebuffed the big wind. My heart in hiding stirred for a bird, the achiever of the mastery of the thing. Brute beauty and valour and act, oh, air, pride, plume, here, buckle, and the fire that breaks from thee then, a billion times told lovelier, more dangerous, oh, my chevalier. No wonder of it. Sheer plod makes plough down cillions shine, and blue bleak embers, ah, my dear, fall, gall themselves and gash gold vermilion. 
Gash Gold Vermilion. Isn't that incredible? Wow. Tell me why you're drawn to this one. I love all Hopkins. I'm only at the beginning of, of understanding his poetry, really, but there's just something about the, <laughs> the lushness of the sounds and the way he works with language I just find fantastic. And this particular poem, of course, is a good one for our purposes, I think, because it's all about movement. It's about the movement of a bird, negotiating the wind. Uh, it's about the exhilaration of a person watching the bird. And then what the poem does is transfers that exhilaration to us as readers, as listeners. I think above all, if, if you're the person speaking this poem, you really get that sense of kind of full body stimulus from this. Yes, yeah, so this is part of your work, isn't it? This is part of your project to say, actually, language is never static, not only on the page, but it actually makes us physically respond. Yeah. Hopkins wrote this poem. It's a spring poem. He wrote it in May 1877, but it wasn't actually published until 1918, and that's after he died. This is really new in terms of language at that time. He's, he's making up sounds and words to say exactly what he's seeing. Mm. It's quite radical, quite difficult poetry. And yet, in this determination to show what movement looks like on the page, he's actually doing something very old, isn't he? Yes, yes, that's right. There are real historical connections between verse and movement going right back to ancient Greece. Uh, you know, court, Greek choral poetry was danced. There's some really interesting research on this in the field of classics, obviously, by someone called A.P. David, who's written a book called Dance of the Muses. And there's a website attached to this with, with, with videos that, you know, reconstructed verse and, and dance. So, so there's that. And then all through poetic history, you get pockets of it. To take another example, the villanelle, that form of poetry. 19 lines, you've got two lines that then repeat and a, and a rhyme. The most famous example of this would be Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. And, and you would think, thinking about that poem, what's that got to do with movement? But the form actually derived from a country dance. So in, in the original Villanelle situation, you'd have, not dissimilar to in, in ancient Greece, I think, uh, you'd have a, you know, a soloist in the middle, semi-improvising, and you'd have a circle of dancers around them who would join in with those two repeated lines that then become the refrain. And I can think of other you know, contemporary examples of, of poetry and dance working together too. I mean, I'm immediately thinking of rap. Yeah, absolutely. Dance music. Yeah, rap, hip hop, it, it, it immediately kind of pushes itself into movement. But what's quite interesting here, and I'm thinking now again of, of Barbara Hepworth struggling with that bronze, you know, here's Hopkins writing a sonnet. That's a 14 line, highly structured, highly regimented poetic form. And he's kind of pushing against it, isn't yeah. he? Saying, I will write a sonnet, but I'll run my lines on, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll break against it, I'll push against it, just like, like our, our wind hover, our kestrel is doing. Exactly, yes, that's exactly right. And it's an example of what we were saying about poetry, putting language under pressure and, and putting the poet under pressure too. Yes, and you would think of a sonnet as a form that's rigid, for all the reasons you just said, it appears very regimented. But the, you know, the thing about it is it has, it has this flexibility in it in, in the hands of a master like Hopkins. Of course, he's taking some liberties. As you say, he's allowing the lines to run on. He's also varying the line length a lot, I think, you know, and, and I think this has probably something to do with, with the flight of the bird that he's trying to convey. You know, sometimes you've got lots and lots of syllables and sometimes then you've, you've got a shorter line with lots of monosyllables. The longer, more flexible lines are perhaps... You know, the, the, um, the, the flight, the agility, the grace of this bird, and then the shorter ones are perhaps the power and the, the, the swiftness of his flight. 
Well, let's have a look at another sonnet which you'd like to show me, again about a bird, different author, John Clare. This one I chose because I think it's a nice comparison with and contrast to Hopkins, that the situation is superficially similar. It's a bird also negotiating a relationship with the wind. But the perspective is, is very different. Uh, you know, in Hopkins, you've got admiration of this majestic bird on high. And here, with Claire, we have the privilege of getting up close to a, you know, a, a little bird on the branch. And that's, that's what Claire does. You know, he's the nature poet par excellence. And really, you know, his, his work is all about giving us uh, an insight into nature and perhaps challenging some of our assumptions about nature too. The Happy Bird. The happy white throat on the swinging bough, swayed by the impulse of the gadding wind that ushers in the showers of April, now singeth right joyously, and now reclined, croucheth and clingeth to her moving seat, to keep her hold, until the wind for rest pauses, she mutters inward melody, that seems her heart's rich thinkings to repeat. And when the branch is still, her little breast swells out in raptures, gushing symphonies, and then against her brown wing, softly pressed, the wind comes playing an enraptured guest, this way and that she sweeps till gusts arise more boisterous in their play, and off she flies. Charlotte, that's so different to what we heard from Hopkins, isn't it? And yet, here are two poets who were living at the same time. John Clare died in 1864. Hopkins died in 1889. They were contemporaries, fascinated by nature. But even on the page, the structure of this poem is completely different. We've got another mm. sonnet, mm. much shorter lines, much quicker rhythm. Yeah. Tell me how it all works. It's not the same level of lushness of language that you have with Hopkins. So sound is important, but it's not as, um, well, <laughs> in your face, in a way, as, as Hopkins. What really interests me about Claire is actually the um, the way he describes movement. Uh, you, you get this all the time in, in his poetry, because, of course, the natural world is full of movement. Philosophers have said this since, since Aristotle, you know, that, 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 that the world is just always in motion about movement. And I think Claire intuits this. And... Um, what I think he, he does is gives you quite a precise sense of how a given animal or bird is moving and then uses poetic devices to, to show that. So here, for example, um, the lines, now reclined, croucheth and clingeth to her moving seat. He's drawing our focus there by that alliteration, croucheth and clingeth to her moving seat to keep her hold. If you're really in the zone with this, you'll start to imagine what a bird does, you know, the little tiny kind of minute shifts of weight, um, the structure of its feet and legs as it's trying and succeeding, you know, to, to, to keep on this branch that keeps moving around. And of course, you're also in, in that process drawing on your own experience, whether it's of seeing a bird um, in nature or even, and this is perhaps a bit out there, but your own experience of trying to balance, you know, on something. From a start of showing us how this movement is everywhere in poetry and, and tuning us in to what writers are trying to do with words on the page. I think your project then goes on to sort of a discussion about how that movement acts on us. Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. And this is where the cognitive approaches have been so useful. One area that, that is, is, is already quite developed 
by literary scholars is the idea of the perception of movement and how that works in, in texts. There's a principle called kinesis, which is the perception of movement. And the principle of this is that if you watch someone doing a movement, you are already beginning to, to mimic that movement yourself. You might not be aware of it. This is, this is not necessarily you moving your limbs, but on a neural level, you're, you're ready to do that yourself. So sections of our brain are lighting up yes. just watching someone else do exactly. the movement. Okay. Exactly. And this, this happens in all scenarios. So it can be something quite simple, like watching someone push a hoover around, um, or it can be something very complicated, like watching dance. And there's been some really fascinating research on this, uh, which has looked at what is happening in people's brains when, when they watch dance. You can find it, um, there's a website called watchingdance.org that really goes into this, goes into the principle of kinesthetic empathy and, and shows what happens. I know somebody who's very important to your studies is the contemporary dancer Anthony Howell, who handily is also a poet. Yes. Yes. And he says language like dance is always on the move. Um, his recent book was published in 2019. It's called The Step is the Foot dance and its relationship to poetry so how's that informed what you're doing and and has it given you has it shown you that there's a path that you can step into and along very much i i was delighted when it came out actually because i thought i'm not mad <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes you think am i just making this up um but but the fact that yes uh you know his experience as a dancer and a poet confirms it and um, his approach in, in the end is, is, is quite different from mine. He's, he's in some ways working quite autobiographically, actually, you know, talking about his own experience of, of training as a dancer, of always being a poet and how these two things work together. Um, and it's, yes, it's really shown me that, that, that it is there. What I like about his work also is that it's, it's already broader than dance. Dance is very important, but he's also, as, as I think you know, that quotation itself showed, he's also thinking about movement more broadly. And, and again, that gives me something that I can, I can move into. Looping back to words on the page for a minute, how does kinesis then, this perception of movement, when we're reading about a bird on the wing, as we are with Claire and Hopkins, how does that work on us in our brains as readers? Yeah, so this, this is the crucial point. And there's a lot of research in neuroscience that's shown that actually uh, the effect can be carried by language as well. You don't have to be watching someone to have this stimulus to, to move. It can be there in text too. And what a number of my colleagues have, have shown is that actually authors do this intuitively all the time. You know, they, they often have an intuitive understanding of, first of all, the significance of gesture, of movement, especially in given social contexts. And they also have an intuitive sense of how to manipulate language, to, to how to get it just so, so that the reader is in that situation and in some sense also then stimulated by it. So you could almost call that, oh, I think you do call it in one of your articles, kinesic intelligence. Exactly, yes. Writers are absolutely awash with this particular kind of intelligence. And interestingly, when I was reading that uh, in your article, I suddenly thought of Julia Donaldson, you know, the children's author. Yes. Who is, exactly. you know, we both have young children, so I know that we'll be reading a lot of Julia Donaldson <laughs> in our homes at the moment, but... You know, she has that very specific beat that kind of carries you along, but she also varies the rhythms and puts surprising rhythms in, which rather delights little children because they can hear it and feel it. Absolutely. And that is so important in their, in their language development. The way children acquire language is by, by listening, but also by watching the faces of their caregivers. And rhythm is absolutely a central part of this. And, and here I've been really inspired by the work of the 
Cambridge Centre for Neuroscience in Education. The director of that is Usha Goswami, and there's a particular project called Baby Rhythm, which is explaining this in, in a lot of detail, showing how, you know, how crucial rhythm is to, to language acquisition, showing, and, and showing how children's, I suppose, appreciation of and, and ability to engage with rhythm becomes more refined as they grow. And can rhythm then help carry children along who are perhaps having difficulties with language? I believe so. Yes, that is also a, a big focus of research in, in the Centre for, for Neuroscience and Education, yes. And certainly, I think it's just a, an important part of development in, in general. You mentioned Julia Donaldson. She's very good with rhythms and nursery rhymes in general. Something I, I like to do with, with, with my toddler is, is pat-a-cake, pat-a-cake. And she, she likes the nursery rhyme anyway. But she really likes it if, if I take her hand and, and clap it against mine, because she's still little, to the main stresses, so pat-a-cake, pat-a-cake, baker's man. She loves that. And I think that's partly just because it's fun. But also what I notice is that she's much more intently focused. Obviously, she's, she's looking at her hand and what I'm doing, but she's also looking at my face. You know, she, she alternates between the two. And I think that introducing that touch and that movement increases her immersion in the, in the language. Um, and that's what, as I understand from the Baby Rhythm Project and other research, that's what caregivers do instinctively. Charlotte, it seems a very radical thing to do, certainly quite an unusual thing to do in the humanities, to dare to also step over the stage towards the scientists and say, I'm ready to learn what you have to say. How have your colleagues, both in the department and in the college, how are they reacting to this idea that you're stepping far out of your comfort zone now into sort of cognitive neuroscience for a humanities project? I think we're just, we're so lucky in Cambridge that that everything is, is so close together and there is all this fantastic research going on that you can you can draw on. How are the neuroscientists responding to you? How, are they amazed to see you pushing the door of the lab and saying, can I talk to you about poetry? I don't think so. Just very supportive, the, the ones I've spoken to, very supportive, very interested and very helpful. Not surprised necessarily. I mean, what I, what I found that the, the neuroscientists I have spoken to, they've been very generous with their knowledge and not at all condescending ever, they haven't seemed to feel this is an imposition because in a way it, it, it could be, you know, I, I have no expertise and I'm saying, well, can I, you know, can I pitch them for your stuff? But there's never been that reaction at all, just very supportive and very inspiring. <laughs> well, let's see if you can convert some them to poetry. That would be, <laughs> that would be a very amazing thing. And if you're then reaching out to people in neuroscience and perhaps people in education and people in child development, will all of these ideas about how better to read and experience, you know, child literacy or even adult literacy is such a fraught area. If you're saying, let's just find a new way of feeling it, do you think that could have an impact on how we approach literature as, as a society? I hope so. I really hope so. And actually, especially perhaps in the in the modern languages context, I have a, a long-standing interest in how we can use poetry in the classroom, potentially. Of course, poetry is difficult but because it's short because it's condensed it's something that you can engage with there and then and so it can be very useful in language learning and if we have this additional point of access in a way by again saying you know don't, don't worry too much about what the words mean which is of course a particular concern if you're, if you're working in a foreign language but think about the sounds think about the effect how does it make you feel physically as much as anything and then you can move from that point I hope that it will increase access. Charlotte, I feel I must ask you what kind of reader you were as a child, because you've obviously now spent really your entire career and, and your entire educational life 
reading and thinking about reading. So can you remember right back to those early experiences of picking up a book and thinking, yes, I think this is my path? I always enjoyed reading as a child. And then I got to languages actually more through the technical side of it, in a way. You know, I used to, <laughs> I used to worry a lot. I, w- I was about 14 before we ever conjugated a verb. And until then, I thought the way to learn a language is, is to learn all the phrases. That's, how, how can I ever do that? And so it was such a revelation when I learned that actually you could, <laughs> you could do it yourself. You know, you have the building blocks and you can do it that way. That in itself was a revelation about how language is working. And then I think... That in turn, obviously, once I got a little bit more advanced with language learning, then I had access to foreign literature. And in a way, that was the moment where I thought, crikey, you know, this has to be, um, whatever the form is, whether it's a novel or a drama or a, a poem. I said I was anxious about poetry, but one way I did have access to it was through song, um, and especially in German. Obviously, there's a huge, just a very rich tradition there. So I suppose that was the path. And at what point... Did German take over as your absolute language of choice and literature of choice? That was about when I was doing GCSE, actually. I didn't actually want to do it. <laughs> I thought I wasn't going to like it, but I already knew I was interested in French. And I was told, well, you know, good to have another foreign language. And from the first week, really, I was hooked. I had a, a really fantastic teacher. That's often the way, isn't it? And I was also doing a lot of singing in a choir and we happened to do things like settings of Faust. And, and at the time, I didn't really know what the words meant. It was at quite an early stage, but nonetheless. And again, it goes back to what I was saying about the importance of, you know, you producing the sounds yourself. There is something about that that's so powerful. And I suppose I got to see then, at a very early age, what this language could do. And I thought, I just, I can't get enough of this. <laughs> is it the logic of it? The fact that German invents new words just by sticking lots of words together and you get infamously these enormous words that they just think, this is great. Yes. You've just invented a whole new concept just by gluing. Yeah, that is, it is fantastic that, yes, it's, um, it's a lot of fun. And yes, it is, it is a very logical language. You know, the, the, the grammar, there are always exceptions, but the grammar does, does work. But I think it was when, when I started to see it put together in, in literary form and, and to see just the, the beauty of it, actually, and what it could do and, and the, the real expressivity of it. Charlotte, this is a massive project because you're dealing with three languages, a supposedly difficult form, technically challenging form, which is poetry, and you're dealing with something very new in terms of thinking of it as a moving, living, pulsing thing, both in us and on the page. How are you going to structure the book? It'll be in three parts. The first part will look at the history of this. So looking at moments in poetic history where you've got poetry and movement, and especially dance, drawing close to one another, just to get the reader into the topic. I suppose to to make people feel comfortable with the idea. Then the second section will look at some of the scientific principles that are helping us to articulate these these questions. So uh, kinesis, kinesic intelligence that we talked about earlier, that intuitive knowledge that that writers have of how to convey movement and and why that's then effective for us as readers. Some work on rhythm, again, that that multimodal aspect of language, all that I hope to try and work up into something that that will then help us to have a more precise appreciation of what's going on when we read poetry. That'll be the second section. And all the while I'll be bringing in lots of different examples from poets just to show these principles in action. So it's, it's so you, you get the scientific input, hopefully but then also with some illustrations directly. And then the third section will take 
a poet in German, a poet in English and a poet in French, and we'll pursue that that theme through their work in more detail. Charlotte, that sounds like the most incredibly complex, detailed ballet that you'll be dancing <laughs> for the next few years. <laughs> yes. It's a bit intimidating sometimes. <laughs> I really wish you very well with it. Your first book that you published was on Goethe and ageing. It's called The Very Late Goethe, Self-Consciousness and the Art of Ageing, and it was published by Legenda in 2014. How did you move from that, that, that consideration, how did you move from that to this idea of movement, poetry, dance? How did that, what were the steps, if you like, that you took? I wish I could say it was that logical. <laughs> I think the poetry and movement thing is, is an interest I've had going on for a long time. I, I came to it actually as a, an MPhil student, but didn't, didn't have the methodology at all to, to deal with it, so I had to park it. And Goethe is just always there. As I say, I had, I had the opportunity to sing some settings of his work when I was, when I was quite young. I still work on him now. He's, he's always there. And I think his poetry is is unique. Some of his contemporaries and predecessors have also provided useful material for this. So uh, a very important poet in the 18th century is um, Friedrich Gottlieb Klopstock. Slightly older, a a predecessor and then contemporary of of Goethe's, whose innovations really made Goethe's own work possible. I think it wouldn't have been thinkable without what Klopstock had done in verse. And Klopstock, really not unlike Hopkins, actually, is someone who conceives of poetry as thoroughly embodied something that has to be read out loud, and is something that has movement, a favourite metaphor of his for writing poetry is ice skating. So you're literally whizzing over that beautiful blank white page yes. as if you were skating over ice, exactly. trying to keep your balance on a, on a knife edge with poetry, aren't you? Exactly, and of course, to go back to the Windhover, the skate is an image we have in there, isn't it? You know, when he's trying to describe the, the kestrels glide and, and dive, uh, he compares it to a skate going round a bend. And there again, you, you've got multiple things going on. You might be able to draw on your own experience. You know how much of a knife edge that is if you've, if you've done ice skating. So you appreciate the bird's, the bird's grace and skill. It also suggests someone who's not falling over on their skates, so it suggests contum- consummate artistry, doesn't it? So, yeah, it's another example of how poets use imagery to resonate with physical experience. And of course, you were writing about Goethe and ageing. So yes. physicality, mortality, yes. life and death, vitality mm. was there for the, from the start for you. Very much so. Yes, very much. And, and you get in Goethe's last work, you know, moments where physical experience intervenes, where he becomes aware of, of mortality and perhaps of a, of a body that's challenging him in, in many ways. The interesting thing with his work in, in that phase is, is that it's, it's full of memory. Uh, you've got all sorts of allusions to much earlier works of his, but always in new forms. It's not, it's not that he's repeating himself, you know, he's, he's going back to older motifs and transforming them to fit to where life is now and, and with the benefit of so much experience. What's coming across to me, Charlotte, as you're explaining how all this is working on us, how these poems are making us feel and respond, I think we're talking about empathy, aren't we? Yes. 
Yes. And communion in some way. Yes, exactly. And that's that's spot on. And that's really why I wanted to start with Hopkins, because I think this oh, his poetry in general, but but this particular poem, The Wind Hover, is a a beautiful demonstration of that. It it works precisely through empathy. We have starting off, we've talked about the concept of kinesthetic empathy, you know, identifying whether or not you're aware of it, identifying with the movement of another being, uh, in this case, the kestrel in flight. The poet talks about the ecstasy of this bird, that becomes the speaker's ecstasy, also becomes our ecstasy. So in a way, for anyone who is in any doubt, you are showing us what literature can do, what it should do at its best. Yes. Connect with us, resonate with us, move us yes. in every way. And in some ways that's why we keep coming back, why we keep reading, rereading, keep reading on, because we want that, we're chasing that feeling. Yes, exactly. And, and you've used the word vitality a number of times, and that's what all art forms can, can do for us, that sense of being alive, of celebration, even of very difficult things. That takes us right back to our Barbara Hepworth working yes. away with her bronze, dealing with those huge emotions in a huge form. Yes. And making them available to us forever. So you're pushing beyond the boundaries of the humanities, you're pushing into cognitive neuroscience, you're pushing into education. I can also foresee this going into a public domain. You're basically saying we can all respond to and feel language and literature in this way. Come on in, the door is open and perhaps is that your goal for this book? I hope so. I hope very much, whether it's the book itself or whether it's talks that I could give on the back of it, any kind of presentation, talks in schools, talks to science festivals, whoever wants to listen, really, because I think it, it would be a shame if it just stayed in, in, in a book on a shelf that a few people who happen to be working in a similar field might read, but then it stays there. Because, as you say, the hope is that it will embolden people, really, to, to, to engage with literature Dr. Charlotte Lee, it's been an absolute delight to have this verbal dance with you today on Thoughtlines. I wish you all the very best with your project thank and you thank much. you for talking to us. Thank you very much. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. Mm-hmm.